Coffee ready? I do. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'll probably be finishing with it soon, but I I got it. It's cool. You could nurse it as if you were in a diner. <laughs> Did that happen? Did that happen? Uh, kind of. It definitely happens in pretty much ever every other offering of this particular filmmaker. We're going to talk about. Yeah, I know he loves coffee. I think he has a phrase. He has a phrase as if it's his and his alone. But he one time stated that. Even bad coffee is better than no coffee at all. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, he also, I think, likes cigarettes a lot. He loves cigarettes. Um, this movie would make you think he's pretty interested in beer as well. Yeah, it would, for sure. Um, I think he also, he likes dressing in a like clean and tight yet subdued aesthetic. What do you mean by that? Like, he's not flashy, but... Okay. When I see pictures of him, he tends to be wearing. He tends to be dressed nicely. Oh, the the man himself. The man not his, his not his films. No, but the the main character in this film is often dressed in a similar manner. I'd say he's a uh, connoisseur. Not he's more than a connoisseur. He's a primary spokesman of transcendental meditation. Yeah, he is. That's right. He has like he's, a foundation or something. A foundation. Yeah, he's working to get meditation in all these different schools. Wow. He seems like a a strangely peaceful man for how disturbing his pretty much a hundred percent of his artistic efforts have been. Yeah, with I, maybe one exception. I agree. I I tend to think when I think of filmmakers, many filmmakers, I as cool as they might seem and as great as their movies might be, I tend to think having a conversation with them would be difficult or at least very annoying. But I don't think that about this guy. I feel like he he would be a good person to actually just kind of have a simple one-on-one conversation with. Yeah. I don't it know might why. Be slightly unsettling, like definitely intimidating because mm-hmm. you definitely don't know what he's going to say. Yeah. But I've watched him interviewed and he's... He's pretty nice to like the interviewers. Yeah. In fact, I watched a 1986 interview about the particular film that we're going to talk about. Wow. Which we're making even more ambiguous than usual today, but that <laughs> <Yeah>. seems fitting <laughs> with the element of mystery. Oh my God. Even though we established that our listener already knows the film and filmmaker, given the episode's title. Yeah, and description, <laughs> in which we definitely talked about the filmmaker. But this interviewer in 1986 was just kind of staring at him in anger. And she was saying things like, this film really disturbed me. Mm. And she asked this particular director a question. She said, are you a genius or just a really sick person? Mm. Do you, do you know what he said? He kind of smiled and said, well, Valerie, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Completely emotionally unaffected. Like, that is amazing. He just kind of took it with calm. And we're, of course, talking about the filmmaker Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Bob Hoskins um, loves coffee, cigarettes, and is disturbed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ever since he put Glenn Close in the... Uh, Boo box. <laughs> the boo box. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> no, JK, obviously. Uh, JK, JK. But there is a connection, I realized, that yeah. Bob Hoskins played Mario in Super Mario Bros. And the actor who played King Koopa was... Dennis Hoopa. <laughs> Hopper. D. Hopper. And yeah. Dennis Hopper happens to play the bad guy in the film we're talking about today. Yeah, and he plays a bad guy on the level that like we are meant to think of someone like King Koopa as a bad guy. Where it's like you're playing Mario and King Koopa is like the epitome of evil, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and the only way forth is to like throw him into a pit of lava. Yeah. And I think Dennis Hopper's character in this movie is very much the epitome of evil. Like on an extreme level to the point where like I don't I will never be able to watch another Dennis Hopper movie the same. Yes. Because I was so disturbed by this. Should we tell our listener what the movie is? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. This movie is uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. <laughs> wow. I don't. I have no no idea where to begin. I feel like Baby Hopper. Sounds good. I mean, that's, that's a heavy dose to begin with. But like when you think of Blue Velvet, I think most people would probably think of Hopper before like Jeffrey. Yeah. McLaughlin. I, I, oh my God. I just like squirmed in my seat, just like trying to piece all this stuff together with Hopper because I have never seen a more disturbing performance of anything. Like it's, it's incredible. Like, uh, other, other notable disturbing performances. Um, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Uh-huh, yeah. That one's very disturbing. Great sure. job. I don't know that actor's name. Um, but he was in the show Monk. Ah. Yeah, very far cry from. Wearing a skin suit and tucking your penis between your ass cheeks. Another uh, disturbing actor character who is in an episode of Monk is uh, Malcolm McDowell, who plays Alex DeLarge in A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Um, Let's see. Other disturbing characters. uh, (laughs) David Fincher. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean the man, but uh, Mark Zuckerberg. uh, Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking of uh, I think his name is Stellan Skarsgård in uh, Girl with Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I love that actor. Talk about a fucking horribly disturbing character. What is? I I can't remember him in that movie. Like, what's what's he's like the rich Swedish guy who uh, (laughs) describes like five people in that movie. (laughs) Um, And the writer. The writer. The writer oh, yeah. of the girls series. I'm, I'd imagine he's a rich Swedish guy now. I would imagine Stieg Larsson. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Is he Swedish? I think so. Yeah, I'd assume so. Yeah. Anyway, um, Skarsgård was just the bad guy in the movie, and he was into some horribly sadistic things, um, yeah. much like Hopper. <laughs> but Hopper, Hopper, the reason why this one stands out for me is because. Dennis Hopper plays this character's unpredictability so realistic that like it's if I'm ever in a social situation where someone is clearly unpredictable and it scares me, I was having the exact same reaction watching Dennis Hopper. And I was I had the benefit of being divided by a computer screen or a TV screen or whatever. And one moment he's like this, the next moment he's like this. And then the thing that just really did it for me. And just made this character so, like, traditionally villainous. Because, you know, like, a villain usually has, like, one attribute where it's like, ooh, that's the villain's thing. And that's what separates the villain from everyone else. It's when he puts that fucking 
oxygen mask thing on his mouth. <laughs> and it's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> the first time that comes out, she's like, first of all, where the fuck is this coming from? Yeah. <laughs> he pulls it out of like a coat pocket. <laughs> and I don't just think starts, it's oxygen. It's it's nitrous oxide. Ah, okay. Because I, yeah. I could tell Which by- uh, was used by William James. Really? Yeah, yeah, and the varieties huh. of religious experience. <laughs> oh, well, like as he wrote it, he was doing it? <laughs> he, he at least tried it, and I think might have even said that it can yield like a religious experience. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, but <laughs> it's, it'd be tough to say that's what Hopper was having. Yeah. When he no, uses yeah. it. <laughs> he just reverted, he, like you could like see his psyche revert into some odd, um, almost more like childlike, oh, it's weird. infantile. What's that? Infantile. Yeah. Oh, it's horribly disgusting and disturbing and um, <laughs> seems very Freudian, um, like deeply. So Freudian. Yeah. Man, I was feeling Freud all over this movie and really, really most of Lynch's movies, I guess. Mm-hmm. My stomach <laughs> hurts right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. This is going to be a painful episode, but mm-hmm. maybe there's uh, maybe there's some Robins coming. Oh yeah, <laughs> some some robins that are so fake that I have to assume it was they intentionally did it that way, which like seems to be a statement. It's like I feel like if if I do you mind if I quickly sort of give my overall uh, theme of this movie? Go for it. And this this is the first time you've seen it, right? Yeah, first time I've seen it. I knew literally nothing about it. Okay. Um, wow. And my th- I think the theme of this movie would be something like, <laughs> "This is so dark." <laughs> even even amidst the cruelty and evilness that exists in the world there is there is hope and there is goodness but that hope and goodness those things are illusions <laughs> <laughs> just because the robin looked like it was made of like paper mache <laughs> yeah and as well as the bookends of that like a very american dream sequence of like the firefighter on that like 1950s fire truck <laughs> motion rolling by the suburban home waving (laughs) yes oh oh my god Yeah, you're right there's it's funny people always talk about lynch's movies you know they're dreamlike and surreal Mm -hmm. and the most dreamlike moments of this movie are actually in those moments of like quote peace like in the suburban areas like with the slow motion fire guy and the light pouring through the windows and that almost feels like like you're saying, less real than the horrible, gritty evil yeah. on like the Hopper Joyride. Oh God! <laughs> or uh, at Ben's house. Oh my God! <laughs> what do you think of Ben? <laughs> I don't even. I don't even know. It just it hurt my soul. Uh, just to see Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Here's to Ben. Oh my God! The the way. <laughs> felt like I was in a very horrible it felt it felt nightmarish but not as like you said like it it didn't have the same level of surrealness that like the the whole movie has elements of surreality but those yeah. peaceful moments it's like it's blatant and like Ben's house was just like this is disgusting and yeah. frightening and Ben represents some here's what Ben reminded me of are you familiar with the the term coined by the philosopher Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil? Have you ever uh-uh. heard that? No. So Hannah Arendt was a German Jewish, I believe she was Jewish, 
Yeah, she was. Philosopher. Get this. Student of and mistress of Martin Heidegger. Oh! <laughs> A man we have not mentioned recently, I don't think. No. Um, but she wrote about uh, going to Israel and seeing the trial of Adolf Eichmann. I, or, uh, I don't know if his name was Eichmann. I, I'm, anyway, Eichmann, one of the Nazi higher-ups who never did anything like – he was never involved personally with like concentration camp stuff, if you know what I mean. But he was like the logistical guy. So he like made sure trains were where they needed to be and construction supplies got where it needed to be, all of which supported the massacre during the Holocaust. Like hmm. A Schindler type. Yeah, like a Schindler type. Although, like, whereas, like, Schindler's, like, helping these... Yeah, but, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Before he started helping them. Correct, exactly. Kind of hands-off, but still involved. Exactly, exactly. So, she talked about, like, well, what what is this guy... How does he experience this evil that he perpetrated? And she came up, basically, with this term, the banality of evil, in which... I, I don't fully understand it, but the the basic idea is that people have a way of doing evil things and... In a very simple way, like or one sta- might say, a, a suave way. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is that in reference to something? <laughs> Do you remember how many oh, times yeah. Hopper tells suave. Ben that he's suave? Yes, very <laughs> suave way. Man, you're so fucking suave. <laughs> so Ben reminds me of this banality of evil because. He just stands idly by as this evil force is allowed to exist and he supports Mm. it, but he himself doesn't really do anything evil. He like alludes to it. Yeah. Just punches Jeffrey in the stomach. (laughs) 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 And like walks away with this little like weird stoned out grin. (laughs) So everyone just cheers when he does that. (laughs) It's like it validates everything they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, God, you have a chance hmm. to stop this guy. Like, you, you just stop this and tell Hopper, just like, okay, leave the boy alone. I'll get out of here or whatever. But he just, yeah. like, lets it happen with his lack of doing anything substantial. And it's... Because Hopper hates pretty much everyone in this movie and is really quite the bully, but he loves Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is, like, so impressed by Ben in every way. Yeah. Just keeps telling him how suave he is. Oh my god, it's so funny. Um, ben comes in at a very weird point in the movie too, because we're like getting closer to the end of the movie. It's like it seems like we're at a point where yeah. it's like you're no longer going to be introducing characters, and yet he's there. And it's like what? Which to me is just a credit for Lynch because this movie had elements to me that seemed like a novel. And I feel like a novel can do things that a movie just can't do. Like a novel can introduce mm-hmm. people late in the book, and it works. Um, Movies, when they try and do that, it feels so rushed and forced. But, like, for some reason, like... Yeah, like Damon and Interstellar. Yeah, exactly. And another Damon movie, um, Downsizing or whatever. Did you ever see that? No. Yeah, it was not good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Ben, frightening. Um, just, I, we don't need to dwell on this. I just kind of have to ask a quick question. Of course. You said Hannah Arendt was Jewish mm-hmm. and she was Heidegger the Nazi's mistress? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't really know how or when that happened. Was it pre-World War II or like pre-Nazi takeover post? But yeah, they were, yeah, I think like for many years. Huh. Heidegger, a man of contradictions. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Love what we hate most. Exactly. 
here's another one. You become what you hate. <laughs> sounds something like something Uncle Ben would say. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> so what would you say this? Oh, you already said what this movie is about. Lynch said this movie is about the mysteries of love and darkness. Mm, I think that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's like a coming of age movie about Kyle MacLachlan, who's kind of this innocent dude who comes back to his suburban home and then he meets Laura Dern, who's mm-hmm. this innocent girl. And he meets her right after he finds a severed ear in a field and he becomes intrigued as to why this human ear would be in his hometown of Lumberton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Dern's dad is the police chief. Yeah. something like that yeah yeah and or the detect detective detective mm-hmm. williams and dern tells jeffrey kyle mclaughlin that she's kind of heard some things through the walls of like what's some strange stuff happening in town and leads him to this kind of uh hitchcockian like apartment complex and and that's really all jeffrey needed to yeah basically become the pervert that he's always been yeah, that was conflicting. Like, what is what is this guy doing? And isn't actually... Wait a second. You said the thing about Lynch in the interview. Are you a genius or are you... A stir? sick person. A sick person. He said, well, we're, you know, like, we'll, we'll see or I don't know. He said, or, I don't know. Isn't Doesn't Laura Dern ask almost that exact question to Jeffrey in the movie? I think, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, she says something like, I'm trying to tell if you're a something or a pervert. And I think he and, said, well, we'll find out. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> that's so hilarious. Yeah. Maybe, I don't feel like plot's the way to talk about this movie. I mean, Hopper... So Jeffrey ends up finding this woman, Isabella Rossellini, um, Dorothy Valens, who's a lounge singer, and she... Only sings one song, apparently. Or at least they only show her singing this song about blue velvet. Oh, God. She wore blue velvet. Uh And it'll show, like, blue velvet billowing curtains and shit. Yeah. Dennis Hopper even has, like, a piece of blue velvet fabric that he, like, gnaws on. Yeah, that he has, like, taken from her, like, robe. Yeah. And so, Jeffrey, by, like, sneaking in with some really dumb plan Mm -hmm. to her apartment to uh to be an insect killer and there's this whole thing of insects in this movie like the movie starts where like beneath the suburban facade of peace you kind of zoom into the grass and see these like roaches just like scurrying in this dark underbelly so lynchian yeah there's some symbolism of him going in as like a roach killer Mm. to like you know expunge the darkness but really like he gets kind of obsessed with this woman, Isabella Rossellini, and kind of the mystery. And um, she's like clearly a tortured soul. Yeah. And turns out that Hopper, Frank, has kidnapped her husband and daughter, son. Hus- husband and son. Yeah. yeah. And basically is making her like his sex slave. Yeah. Which Jeffrey first observes through the closet door after he snuck into her apartment. Mm-hmm. And I think he's butt naked. Um, oh, not yet. Not at the beginning. Uh, the first time he sees Hopper. Is he really? 
Oh yes, he yeah, is because she like makes because she finds him in the closet and he's been like watching her oh my God. like take her clothes off. That's right. And she like pulls a knife on him and makes him take all his clothes off. That's right. And then is like going up to him and getting like starting to fondle him and kiss him. And then Hopper knocks on the door and he runs with his clothes into the closet oh my and God. observes That's right. naked Hopper doing some really, really horrific things. Yeah. Which is his character's introduction. Like, <laughs> that's how we first meet Frank. And he busts out, like you said, that nitrous oxide yeah. inhaler. And it's so disturbing. Frank is just so disturbing because the, I, from what I picked up, like the his sole intention of kidnapping her husband and son is to make her his sex slave right it's like yeah there's no indication that like her husband owed him money or anything like that it's just he became enthralled with her even to the point where later we see him watching her sing at the lounge yeah. and he's crying hmm. and yeah. it's so while fondling the blue velvet yeah it fabric that he has it is this horrible like sexual sadomasochism that is just perverse as fuck and yeah I, it's like the darkest possible side of the male psyche yes exactly that's horrifying but part of the commentary then becomes that that side exists in jeffrey and by extension like us the audience because jeffrey's are kind of like lens into this world Mm -hmm. in this point where uh the writer david foster wallace wrote a lot about lynch he really loved lynch Ah. um and he wrote about blue velvet and how seeing it in the theaters like literally changed his life and his artistic sentiment. And he made this point that during the joyride, Hopper turns around to face Jeffrey. Yeah. 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 And yeah. He oh says like, um, says something like I'm in you or like I live in you or you're you and me are the same. But the way the camera is facing Hopper's looking like directly at the camera. Yeah. So it's like, he's saying that to us, the audience and Leslie's saying these horrific sides of human nature they also exist in you and that's you go so freudian on that with like the id yeah and the repressed desires and man i've seen this movie probably five times and i still picked up new stuff this time <laughs> and one of those is that jeffrey like keeps going back even after this horrific incident to isabella rossellini's place because he's so like obsessed with her yeah. and she wants him to hit her when they're like going at it and he's like no i won't do that because you know he saw that frank did that and that's just you know an objectively horrible thing but she insists and he does it he like yeah. relents oh my god does what she asks and when he leaves the apartment after this particular like evening frank is right there and he meets frank and frank kidnaps him on this joyride so it's almost like the more he indulges that side of himself that frank represents the more like Frank becomes this actual part of his life. Yeah. (laughs) God. I'm just so disturbed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's baffling. It's so baffling and it's disturbing. And here's what I've realized in terms of things that disturb me, movies, art, that sort of thing. The stuff that I find most disturbing, it's not like, it's not like your typical blood and gore and like, gross jokes or stuff like that that stuff's not disturbing the stuff that is disturbing (laughs) those are the things that like do actually seem to hit a nerve of reality and the fact that lynch is like kind of breaking that fourth wall like thematically and like philosophically 
is what makes this so horrifying because he's making that statement of like this exists in you and like you said sean this is like the deepest darkest part of the male psyche and guess what you're probably capable of it which right is we we, yeah we've talked about the lynchian universe and how fincher tends to fall in there and i I feel Uh like that is definitely true of fincher as well right you get these things where it's like (laughs) i'm going to confront you the viewer with the reality that see this evil this utter absolute devoid of all goodness evil right here (laughs) like that's not you but it could be yeah i mean that's i feel like you're describing fight club in so many ways like the tyler durden which turns out to be spoiler fig a figment of e norton's imagination yeah and i guess what might be even different about fincher is that while lynch clearly villainizes this manifestation fincher makes him the coolest guy ever (laughs) (laughs) yeah to the point where like he may have actually caused cultural harm through that movie because so many people like 17 year old males will watch that movie and want to be like tyler durden yeah because they're too dumb to realize that that's not the message yeah, I, whereas I, I doubt too many people see Blue Velvet and are like, "Man, I really want to be like Frank." <laughs> <laughs> that guy is cool. Yeah, no, you're so right, and um, I'm not as familiar with David Lynch as you, but like his movies do the ones that I'm most familiar with. They do have this um, this sense of hope and peace, even if you know to, to what degree that's explicit or whatever. Um, the idea that humanity can be good, I feel like, is is present as well. And except Mulholland yeah, Drive, <laughs> really? I, I don't. It's pretty dark. <laughs> okay, I, I figured there like there had to be exceptions to that. Yeah, um, but it, definitely his stuff around that time, like Twin Peaks, you know. And uh, one of his earlier movies, uh, The Elephant Man. Yeah, The Elephant Man has a has Hopkins. a positive outlook. Hopkins, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurt, Jay Hurt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of redemptive qualities to the elephant man i haven't seen the straight story but i feel like that's an outlier in his canon like it's g-rated and Weird. um yeah it's have you heard of it i have not it's you're, it's about the uh the sheriff from misery you remember him um wow she, what's his name i mean not the <laughs> actual character i mean the actor, the actor. okay <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, farnsworth maybe um mm, okay he died soon after the straight story, but he, uh, I don't know his motive, but he does like a cross country trip on his tractor. Wow. Yeah. And it, you know, it got up for Oscars and stuff, Funny, um, but it had kind of a lightness, a light feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, then you got a racer head. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just who the fuck knows. Yeah. Yeah. Dune. Dune. <laughs> you know, he almost directed the empire strikes back. Yeah, yeah. George Lucas personally asked him to. Wow. I wonder <laughs> what that would have been like. I don't know. I think we've talked yeah. about this before. Yeah, yeah. It probably would have been really bad. <laughs> <laughs> the Emperor would have been creepy as hell. Um, where were we on Blue Velvet? This one just takes on takes on joy rides left and right. Oh, God. Um, yeah. I don't know. We. I think we ended with just the fact that we all could be Hopper. And then we were finishing kind of talking about how Jeff was becoming like Hopper in like the nudity and the hitting. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, Freud 
was very much about the connection between sexuality and like well in males at least he tried to extend it to females but it's just pretty dumb um <laughs> but like definitely in, in males like the connection between sexuality and like violence and aggression and that seems to be so much what hopper represents like these manifestations of probably the worst side of males and you know there's power and force and you know there's a big question like where that comes from like you know he's a short guy maybe he's got kind of short Mm. man syndrome like he's got to got to assert his dominance and apparently the story goes that lynch like you know showed him this role or showed him the script and hopper said i must play frank because i am frank oh my god (laughs) he said this is me (laughs) wow hopper apparently i saw this interview on david letterman he went through a five-year period where every single day he would eat or sorry he would drink at least 28 beers and a half a gallon of liquor with a side of a fifth of whiskey. Holy shit. <laughs> and he'd do like lines and bumps of Coke to sober up every day for five years. <laughs> Holy, how could you function? <laughs> I don't know. There's another great story where uh, he, he's real famous for Easy Rider. He yeah. directed Easy Rider and co-wrote it with That's Peter Fonda. Right. Uh-huh. And uh, that that's one of the movies that gave Jack Nicholson kind of his first mm. um, recognition because he actually got nominated for an Oscar and he's in this supporting but memorable role. Okay. The role was originally offered to actor Rip Torn. And really? <laughs> Rip Torn. <laughs> you would know from, from Dodgeball as yeah. Patches O'Houlihan. <laughs> Patches O'Houlihan. <laughs> and uh, apparently... Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Rip Torn were all sitting down for a reading of the Easy Rider script. And Hopper was just going off about like redneck Texans. And Torn is a Texan. And apparently, <laughs> Torn hated Hopper so badly that they like started brawling. Like they wow. got in a fight in this place. That and it had to so get funny. broken up. And Rip Torn dropped from the project. There you go, Jack. <laughs> Years later, Rip Torn sued Dennis Hopper. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, because Hopper went on like some talk show and like spoke about the incident where I think Rip Torn was portrayed very negatively. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Dennis Hopper, maybe that's part of the reason why Frank seemed so realistic because Dennis Hopper, he does a very good job playing crazy people. Like, yeah. you know, like unhinged. Um, speed. Waterworld, Speed. Mm-hmm. Others, I'm sure. Koopa? <laughs> Koopa? Uh, yeah, okay. I, whew. It's a good question, though. What Kind of what you brought up just a little while ago. Like, what is this connection between sexuality and violence? I feel like that is something right. that is so inherent in our culture in very subtle ways. The way young men are taught about sex or just young men taught about many things where it's like somehow it includes this subtle indication that violence is a part of it and it's yeah. horrifying you, yeah, know, you go on urban dictionary and find like i don't know these i don't know what the names would be but these absurd names of like sex moves yeah that like dudes might do and they're all they all just involve like some act of violence yeah. against the woman ah uh, it's horrifying yeah, and especially with what's kind of going on these days with the exposing of mm-hmm. all these men in power yeah. who are doing like 
pretty horrifying sexual things. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, Lauer, Spacey. Yeah. And then uh, the Bill Cosby, there's like a retrial going on with that. Um, it's, it's, it's really disturbing. And I don't know. I, I like I don't have anything substantial to say about it, except for that it clearly is a part of culture where like these power plays involving sex and sexuality within males. It's like, why, why is that connection there? Like, what is, what is that connection? I'm, I'm sure depending on like which field of academia you ask, there could be given different answers. You could look at it from like a biologically anthropological, anthropological, yeah. yeah, Philosophical, like just straight cultural. Mm -hmm. I mean, cause Yeah. yeah, it asks, it asks the question, like, is this a cultural thing? Is this an inherent biological thing? Like, yeah, you know, something that's straight inherited from our primate ancestors. Yeah, like we must procreate. You know, that's a that's a feeling that you know I'm sure it remains from when we were, you know, I don't know, lesser bonobos. What's that? Bonobo? Yeah, bonobos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't have our degree of rationality, and yeah, I don't know. It just it, with like like sexual violence as this is portrayed, and not to sound like too kind of like flippant or graphic at the same time, but like. Dennis Hopper take Frank in this movie like why must you perpetrate this horrible act of sexual violence like why can't you just turn on the song Blue Velvet and masturbate by yourself like right. w- you know like what is this what is this I don't even it's yeah oh it's yeah it's like make the fantasy real yeah because that's that's kind of what he ends up doing like he takes his indulges the darkest fantasies that he might have and forces them into reality yeah like through an act of kidnapping and through like violence and through the use of nitrous oxide Mm -hmm. which is a regression like he inhales it and like you point out before he regresses to this infantile thing where he starts like screaming the word mommy and (laughs) like you know it just makes you wonder like what kind of like horrible trauma did this dude suffer as a child to like yeah I want this to happen and fuck. <laughs> it's just a, a baffling enigma that just is with no explanation. Yeah. And everyone is horrified by him. And that's that uh, people are drawn to that power. Like he has like four cronies or whatever. Like yeah. why do these people bend to his back and call, you know, like, yeah, they'll listen to anything he has to say. They're afraid of him uh-huh. or something, but, it's so disturbing. And like, I thought about this because, you know, something that's kind of common these days or whatever it has been for a while, but like there are a lot of podcasts about serial murderers. And I feel like some of what we're talking about here kind of touches on some similar themes that are talked about with like serial murderers. You know what I mean? Like this, this weird, like almost like uncontrollable urge to do something. And what is the deep, dark source of that? Like, why does that exist? How does that continue to exist? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a mystery, not in the way that like a noir film has a mysterious twist, but it's like the deepest, darkest mystery of human society. Yeah. Do you think there's any significance in the fact that his name is Frank, which, which aside from being a name can mean honesty? Hmm. Like he's Frank. He's honest. (laughs) That I never thought of that. Possibly, 
Yeah, I just thought of it when you said his name at one point. I was like, oh, Frank. Like, Frank, honest. Frank Booth. Frank Booth. Quite possibly. Yeah, like, yeah. I, there's no need to, like, go into, like, depth. Yeah, he's, it seems like Lynch has intended him as this grotesque reflection of ourselves. And I think Lynch is interested in that, like, the elephant man, kind of a grotesque yeah. reflection, but in a physical way. He's interested in the grotesque and how our revulsion to it, but I don't I, that maybe that causes more suffering. Like, cause Jeffrey's Jeffrey's journey is kind of like a loss of innocence. You know, he's never going to be the same after this, but it's also like a journey of setting boundaries, kind of limiting what like Carl Jung said that enlightenment isn't imagining figures of light, but making the darkness conscious. Ah. Uh, and so I think Lynch's films can be very Jungian as well, playing on some strange archetypes that don't typically get represented represented in film because they're so disturbing, mm-hmm. and yet they seem common. Um, and so Jeffrey, you know, a journey into the night, you know, the night yeah. sea journey is a Jungian concept too, where, you know, with the moon and stuff, the typical mythological associations is that unconscious things become conscious, you know, with dreams and stuff. And, you know, like that fucking Ben even sings the song in dreams by Roy Orbison, which (laughs) if you listen to it on its own, it's like kind of a nice song. But when you see Ben lip syncing it and this weird woman doing like a dance to it and hoppers, like having these weird convulsions as he's like (laughs) listening. And it's just, it's, it's, I think about, the depths of the darkness of the shadow self in the night becoming conscious and the difficulty in like facing that and like not just keeping it repressed away but see like oh fuck like this all exists inside of me because i think you can easily see this film through the lens of like it's all this is all just content of jeffrey's psyche uh yeah and like almost in how like dreams because again so much of this is dreamy lynch's movies are dreamlike even um uh main character's name the the woman again isabella Um, rossellini her character dorothy valens yeah yeah so what was her first name dorothy dorothy dorothy's apartment has this dreamlike feel to it like the, the way they filmed it 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 just it feels uh like like doesn't totally feel like a geometric room normally feels when you're in it. Something about it seemed like askew and I can't tell what. Yeah. It's, it, it's like a Kubrick type of room. Exactly. In a way. And it has this color that you normally don't see on a wall and it has these like blank mm-hmm. walls. It just felt very dreamy. Everything about it is like dreamlike and fuck. I don't. Oh yeah. Here I remember now. And you know, that kind of common understanding of dream analysis where you are everyone in your dreams. Right. Am I right about mm-hmm. that? Like, I've heard that interpretation, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that'd, that'd be pretty Freudian. Okay, yeah. Like, you know, you're every character in your dream, and in one respect, that bears a certain level of definitive truth to it because you created that in your mind, you know. So in that respect, at least, for sure, like, you created this. But, you know, if you're everyone in your dream, damn it, <laughs> now what is I going to say? Is it that we're everyone in this movie? You know, like, we're capable of everyone in the movie – 
if we're if we're going to go along with this as being like deeply freudian and deeply dreamlike um mm-hmm. and then it just reminds me so much of this idea that like how someone becomes an evil person like how someone becomes like a dictator and how it's like not a big switch that has to be turned on or off for that change to happen yeah and, and like one yeah like yeah. just watch breaking bad and yeah these subtle moments that turn someone from a good person into this horrible villain exactly so like one example that i'm thinking of that the onion found a brilliant way to to laugh about is the dictator in syria bashar al-assad who is known for dragging on this horrible civil war and gassing his own people and that sort of thing he he is a medical doctor and he went to school to become a doctor and to help people and his father was the president of Syria. And when his father got sick, he returned home to, like, help with politics. And now he has become this notorious dictator who drops barrels of gas on to people. And um, it's like, where? how did that switch happen? And anyway, The Onion, they had this funny headline with him. And it showed his picture. And it was like, Bashar al-Assad, like, recalls memory of... When he, like when he was an, a med student and he wanted to help people, <laughs> but like now he's now he's not killing people like all the time. Yeah, like, what the fuck happened? How does a normal person who wants to become a doctor so that he can save people's lives now gas children? Uh. <sighs> <sighs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah, that's heavy, man. Yeah, is it? Does it just happen along the path to like power? I don't know. I don't think so. Like not. I don't feel like it has to necessarily. But yeah, in a pretty corrupt fucking world. Mm-hmm. I like. Damn. There is that the enli- I love that what you said about enlightenment as not like how would how did you say that again the the Jungian thing. Uh, yeah, the young young quote. Um, it's it's something like enlightenment doesn't come through imagining figures of light, but through making the darkness conscious. Okay, because I can't help but think people who are able to have some kind of power or authority and not abuse it, they must have a sense of of their uh, capacity to be evil people, and by being aware yeah. of it, they can they cannot let it destroy them. I think that's really the key there is like, cause Jung's not saying, you know, it's making the darkness conscious and then embodying it, mm-hmm. but rather like I, recognizing it and then like remaining in light in the face of it or something like that. Like, yeah. you know, it gets into star Wars territory. Like the dark side is seductive because it has this power and um, it's very tempting, but you know, it's, the hero's path or whatever is that path of light. And that's, I think Jeffrey's struggle, right? Is like, he's going deeper into this world of darkness and is being like more and more tempted by the darkness. And yet he has to like find a way to resist it. And that's why he has to be the one to like kill Frank at the end. Yeah. When he, uh, that's to tie back you mentioned the apartment how the apartment there's something creepy and unsettling about it and it just doesn't lynch has this way of knowing how an image can just make the like 
concrete human psyche uncomfortable. Yes, like, he does. <laughs> no matter who you are, yeah. there's something that will make you uncomfortable. <laughs> and at the end, when Jeffrey goes into this apartment after like Dorothy Valens has showed up at, um, at I guess Laura Dern's house, oh my God. like completely naked. naked and bruised, and like, oh my, that part is so fucking disturbing because she just like appears in the background on the lawn mm-hmm. as this pale like woman with like her arms raised it's like what the fuck yeah and jeffrey goes to her apartment to see what's up and there's the room that we get in the standard frame except now to the left sorry to the center like right in the center is <laughs> I forgot about this this man who we've never seen who turns out to be dorothy's wife and he's like sitting bound to a chair immobile with his head tilted and a blue velvet blue velvet fabric like jammed in his mouth and to the left is like an aside profile the yellow man this man is yellow man this man in yellow that we've seen a few times but you know not really known much about except that he turns out to be a police officer and he's got like blood pouring down his head a chunk of brain on his head and he's just standing there like he's standing it's like, what the fuck is going on here? That was so horrifying. So, yeah, and there's even a part where, like, a police radio goes on and his arm, like, twitches and he hits yeah. something. And then he just kind of wobbles and he's still standing there. <laughs> like, but this guy's clearly dead. Yeah. So there's not everything can match up logically uh-huh. in a Lynchian universe. No, for sure. And something, I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminded me. So moving forward a few minutes to the end when Jeffrey's hiding in the closet, as I watched this movie, I kept looking at Jeffrey and thinking to myself, why is he not more terrified of everything happening? There were moments where I was like, he didn't seem at peace, but he didn't seem as terrified as I feel I would have been and looked. (laughs) I almost wonder if it's this sense that even when he's around Frank, it's not totally unfamiliar territory. You know what I mean? Like Frank is clearly this outside force, but is he, is he used to not used to it? Has he, has he experienced this? I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. Like traces of it or something like maybe in a dream or something like that. Or it's not completely foreign, not completely foreign. Exactly. And like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just, maybe that was Lynch's way of having Kyle McLaughlin, play fear where it's not like ah ah you know but like subdued like <laughs> uh, like i can't think right now my heart is pounding a million beats a second kind of thing yeah yeah that's that's an interesting point um and he just kind of kind of sits there and observes everything and especially once hopper kidnaps him for a joy ride um, ride <laughs> let's go on a joy ride jesus <laughs> And Jeffrey's just kind of sitting there. It seems very afraid in the bank seat. He's not saying anything. And yet, once Hopper starts doing pretty horrible things in the front seat to Dorothy Valens, he punches Hopper in the face. Yeah, he does. So he has to kind of like act in the face of this fear and like against it and define himself against it. Man. And yet, like, none of these interpretations are correct. <laughs> like, there's always more with Yeah, Lynch. there is always more. And this is probably his most straightforward 
movie other than like the elephant yeah. man like of that kind of crazy surreal round like this is probably the most easy to follow which is so amazing because people a lot of filmmakers have trouble putting any kind of nuance in characters that are easy to understand and he is creating characters that are so fucking hard to understand like fucking ben um and 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 he's like doing it in such a way where it doesn't totally derail the movie which is just to like give him credit as a filmmaker where it's like how how can you create how can you fucking have this stuff happen at every moment and not leave me the viewer being like ah, i'm i'm done that's it i'm out of here and i'm sure a lot of people would because it's so disturbing but it's like sucking you in like what is gonna happen next yeah and he doesn't fucking toy with your emotions it's not like he won't just do like a really loud ringing phone just to scare you. <laughs> instead, right. instead, he'll have a he'll have a comatose yellow man standing there and dead. Talk about a yeah. fucking anomaly! Or this like, <laughs> yeah, or this weird distorted face that's just making like low pitched noises. I don't know if you caught that. Uh uh-uh. uh Jeffrey's like sleeping at one point. I think after some night with uh with Dorothy. And for probably like two or three seconds, there's just this distorted like face where like the lips are like all across the screen and like the head is in this weird shape and it's just like, oh yeah, I think that's supposed to be his dad. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, you're probably uh, there. You go, like Lynch. He he introduced how disturbing this movie was going to be the first time we saw Jeffrey's dad, who just had a stroke, and Jeffrey's seeing him for the first time in the hospital. And he just does that typical sort of Lynch, like, kind of like, like pan in with the camera where he just, you just see his dad and his dad's like trying to speak, but like all he can do is like move his tongue over his lips. And it's like leaving it on that image for way too long for comfort. And so just like kind of letting you know as the audience, like, okay, here we go. This is like, this is like a one and we're about to go to 10. So get ready right right yeah and i think that's really kind of what lynch does is he exposes the the ridiculous darkness and like creepiness of like existence or human nature within like the structures of you know blissful looking yeah. reality you know moholland drive is naomi watts is going to la like as an aspiring actress and like so much of the imagery when she arrives is just so bright and she's got these like starry eyes, you know, it's just this, this dream of that Hollywood bliss. And it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper into what kind of darkness is beneath that facade. <laughs> so Amazing. Fincher, it's uh, Fincher doesn't really even show any blissful side. It's no. just all, it's like starts in darkness and just goes darker. Yeah, exactly. You're right. You're right about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know if I have much more to say about BV. Yeah, I I don't. And here's the thing about it. You know, we've gotten to this point with movies before where we're like, damn, I don't think I could say anything else about this, but I could keep saying stuff. And you know what? Let's revisit this in a year or five or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I definitely feel like you could talk more about this movie, but I almost feel like there's no need to revisit it. And I don't mean that in a way cause it's like disturbing, but I mean that because it's like, 
I don't know. <laughs> like maybe I personally won't be able to get anything else out of it. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, like if I... Or you're just afraid to get anything ooh, else out of yeah, it. Oh, yeah. I want to hide. You're afraid. <laughs> you're afraid, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hopper's a disease. <laughs> and that, that's another... That's a line from this movie that... I always forget because I think I block it out, but it's just creepy where after Jeffrey sleeps with Dorothy Valens, she says, like, I have your disease in me Oh, now. my God. <laughs> <laughs> she says it like three times. And then she says it to Laura Dern. <laughs> I have his disease. <laughs> Poor Laura Dern, who's like the embodiment of like naivete and uh-huh. innocence and has this dream of these loving Robins. But that leads Dern to do that. Um, iconic Dern grimace. I knew you were going to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> I was really d- observing it closely this time um, to figure out what's interesting about it, and it's like her lower lips kind of like fan out, kind of like in they they fan out, and then as they move toward the center, like they kind of rise in this arc, yeah. and meet in the middle, yeah. And I don't think those are like normal muscles for a, a human lip yeah it's like really distressful like she like she can like form her her mouth into like a parabola like when like <laughs> exactly <laughs> which like oh i love laura dern she's so great yeah her lower lip is the curve of facebook stock <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty bad joke oh. that facebook stock's gone down since zuckerberg was spying on everyone yeah. and they're selling our data fincher Fincher, Fincher. Uh, I bet he was happy about that. Because I, I <laughs> like not that people were hurt, but that that he that he that people were allowed to see that he has been right all along that humans are horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Probably so. He's a bad yeah, guy, utterly incapable of any sort of redemption. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the most influential amongst us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Dern's great. Dern was like 19 and they made this movie. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, Dern has something, she's got like a, a maturity about her, like mm-hmm. something transcendent. Like I, when she made Jurassic Park, I think she was like 25 or like 26. Oh my God, yeah. Like, holy shit, I thought she was like 40. Mm-hmm. I mean, because she was maybe with Dr. Grant, who mm-hmm. was like 47. Yeah, but, and, and hated kids. <laughs> and hated kids, yeah, and Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, we should really do Mulholland Drive, though, because cool. I, I feel like Blue Velvet is pretty focused on, like, the sexual. Like, it's very Freudian in that yeah. respect, whereas, like, the sexual is maybe one of about 83 different components of Mulholland Drive. Okay. <laughs> like, it's massively more complex. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Ebert hated Blue Velvet and loved Mulholland Drive. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us on this snob, listener. Yeah. yeah. I uh, doubt dreams. you laughed once, listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You probably saw full force that laughing for us is often a coping mechanism. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine having a truly totally serious conversation about this movie or i would i would feel even sicker than i do right 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 <laughs> well matt's about to go throw up for the next couple hours yeah so um hopefully you don't uh and yeah find resist, your robins find your robins resist your inner frank 
Yes, please. <laughs> and then all will be well. For sure. All right. See Alrighty. you next time. Yeah, take care. Farts. Farts. <laughs>